Well, welcome again to City Life this Saturday evening. Uh, how many of you were a little surprised and thankful? Steph was on stage tonight singing. First time in a long time. It's a long story with brain surgeries and all kinds of stuff mixed in, but it's been a while. And all that honestly was a curveball because Tara, who was going to lead tonight, she's sick. She's had tonsillitis. She's probably going to need to get her tonsils removed. She's in a lot of pain. So I just wanted to, as I'm starting, can we just pray for her? She's not even here, but we know God can touch her right where she is and heal her. Lord, God, we pray for Tara. God, we pray for the suffering she's been in for this week straight. God, we know there's probably procedures on her horizon. God, but we pray that you would touch her body right now. God, that you would remove the just the, the constant pain, Lord God. And, and remind her tonight that you're with her. I don't know how you're going to do it, but God, we just ask that tonight she would just have such a feeling, God, that you're with her in this season, that, that there's going to be an end on the horizon. You're going to bring her through it, and that somehow through this, as we see in Scripture, you're going you're gonna to deposit something in her that she's going to take with her in her future. But we pray you will bless her with healing tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And then also coming out of the, the opportunity we had to give tonight in the offering and to step into generosity, I just wanted to share something uh, because we work through this as a leadership team and as elders. This is the list of, of organizations, ministries, and missionaries that we give to uh, here at City Life. And I just wanted to run through them because many of you may not even know that we give to these things, but this is important. One of them is established footsteps. Uh, some of you probably know about the ministry they do to local strip clubs for, for women. They also do uh, letters to women that are in jail. They also do retreats and conferences, but that's established footsteps. We support Claudia Johnson. She's a missionary in Turkey. We support Toby Cavanaugh. He's a missionary in China. We support something called Link, which is leading innovatively Niger to the kingdom, the, this country that's been in poverty for so long, helping businesses. It's really with a focus on business there in Niger. There's ICM, the International Cooperating Ministry, whose goal is to build churches within walking distance of everyone in the world. I love that mission statement. There's CareNet, which is a pregnancy resource center here on the peninsula. Catalyst Effect, a movement that counsels cultures and mentors at-risk students. Virginia Unity Project, an organization working towards racial reconciliation in the region. Virginia Beach Justice Initiative, an organization that fights human trafficking, as well as two college ministries at CNU, Ivy, and Crew. So if you want to get that list from me, you absolutely can. If you want to be praying towards those things, put those down. You can't. I just wanted to share that with you because I, I know as, a, as an elder team, as, as a team of leaders, we're putting that together. And just to let you know, yes, there's, there's a return on investment here on Saturdays, but there's also a return on investment you may never see because we're sowing into those ministries. There's thousands of people that are being reached, if not more, that, that we don't even know about through those missionaries and through those ministries. And I just wanted to say thank you. We're able to support all those ministries, all those missionaries because of your giving. And last year was the best year in giving and generosity we've ever had as a church. So pat yourselves on the back, right? And uh, let's dive into the word tonight. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. While we're actually talking about mission work, uh, we're, we're about to take off for the Dominican Republic on a mission trip in a f about six weeks. This is the last weekend I can say we have one spot left if you're interested, and the deadline's this week. So it's the last time I can say it, so I'll throw it out there. But for all of us, whether we're going on mission trips, whether you're, whatever you're doing this summer, many of us will be traveling. Many of us will be taking trips to see relatives, we'll be going on vacations, because summer is the season for all of that. I can remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad was a carpenter, built homes his whole life. Did carpentry, blue collar. So we weren't uh, flying to our destinations. We weren't going on cruises. Our idea of a summer vacation was to hop into the, the blue Dodge Caravan we had 
all six of us and drive to one of our, our relatives, right? So whether it was my, my grandmother outside of Chicago, 16 hours away, my grandfather in upstate New York, like 18 hours away, or my grandmother in Naples, Florida, over 20 hours away, like we would just hop in that caravan and get moving, right? My mom would pack the cooler. My dad would pack the map. It wasn't even, you guys remember MapQuest, right? It wasn't even that yet, right? He just had the big paper map that took up the whole dashboard. You had to pull over because it blocked the windshield, right? He, he would pack that map. And I would pack the, the Discman, right, with the skip protection. Got to have the skip protection. That was a game changer, right, that you would put in the tape cassette. And uh, I probably brought enough CDs to, like, affect the gas mileage we would get in that vehicle because I had so many of them. But I can remember the first time that we drove to my grandmother's house in Naples, Florida. Because we literally drove most of one day, spent the night probably in South Carolina, Georgia, somewhere. I don't remember those details. I was young. But the next day, we started driving, and we hit Florida. And we as children were like, oh, we're, we're there. Right? We're in Florida. And my parents rudely let us know that there was still seven hours of driving to get from the top of Florida to where my grandmother was. So for those seven hours, at the tip of our tongue were those four words that many young children struggle with that sometimes would slip past our our still developing filters and those four words were, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we're going to go on journeys this summer. Maybe you'll take road trips like that, but life itself is a journey. Following Jesus is a journey. We spent all last summer just reflecting on this reality, and we as God's children are waiting in a lot of ways. But I think often when we think about eternal life and how it fits into the big picture, we think of it as something that starts down the road when we get to our destination, when we arrive there, and we're itching to get there and taste it, but we feel like we have to wait for it. So our soul cries again and again, are we there yet? But Jesus gives us this definition of eternal life that we've been looking at for a couple weeks now. It's in John 17, right before the events of Easter as he's praying. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, eternal life is not tied to a place. It's tied to a person. Like heaven isn't heaven if God's not there. It's, it's heaven because of Jesus. And we sang that new chorus tonight uh, because, again, that's reality for a lot of us. I will praise you on the mountain. I'll praise you when the mountain's in my way. I'm going to praise you regardless. But I love that line in there, you're the heaven where my heart is. Because heaven isn't tied to a place. Heaven is a you. Right? It's, it's a person. It's Jesus. And eternal life is life lived with God in relationship with Jesus. And that means, by definition, eternal life isn't something that's far down the road. We have to ask, are we there yet? As the philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard has said, and we've quoted, eternal life is now in session. It's not tied to a destination because Jesus came here. He opened the door to relationship with God through the cross. So when you ask, am I there yet? Are we there yet? The answer is yes, right? We can step into that depth of relationship now. So in these few weeks, we're looking at the perspective Jesus gives us on salvation and eternal life. Why Jesus came and died and rose on Easter. Eternal life, salvation, the kingdom of God, and what he said about it. Because although the veil was torn that Easter weekend, this symbolic picture of of the relationship we can now step into with God. That, that because of Jesus' sacrifice, we don't have to wait to sacrifice animals. We don't have to stand behind the veil in the temple. No, we can step into relationship with him. And yet there's so often veils in our mind, whether it's perspectives or ways of thinking about eternal life and salvation that don't line up with Scripture, that keep us from walking in that relationship. 
So tonight, we're going to look at uh, uh, Mark chapter 10. But as we've been in this series for a couple weeks, we started looking at how uh, so often we talk about Christ in me, and we looked at how Scripture talks about me in Christ, us in Christ, right? Christ in us is mentioned about a half dozen times in Scripture. Us abiding in Christ and being in Christ is mentioned hundreds of times. So we talked about, okay, how does that affect our perspective about eternal life? Last week we talked about how grace, it, it doesn't just call us, it equips us. It's not just about forgiveness, it's about enablement to walk in the life that Jesus promises. And if you read the New Testament, the word life is a synonym that's used for salvation throughout the New Testament. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. In 1 John 5.12, it says, whoever has the Son has life. And in Ephesians 2.5, it says, God made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. If you read through the Gospels, the, the phrases eternal life, salvation, and even the kingdom of God, they're all used in the Bible to speak to the life that God calls us to and the life that we tap into when we follow Jesus Christ. To be saved is to enter the kingdom and to lay hold of eternal life. In Mark chapter 10, our passage tonight, you're going to see all three. In verse 17, the rich young ruler, as he's come to be known, he comes to Jesus and asks, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And in verses 23 through 25, Jesus equates this with entering the kingdom of God. And finally, in response to the whole exchange, the disciples ask, who then can be saved? But let's read the passage. It's, it's Mark chapter 10, 17 through 27. I've always got this thing marked tonight. I forgot. I'm almost there. Don't worry, I know how to get through my Bible, right? <laughs> Mark 10, 17 through 27. Mine says the rich young man. It says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded and asked, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humbly speaking, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, excuse me, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Let's pray briefly. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use it tonight to, to teach us about you, your heart, and what you desire from us. And help us to walk in those desires you have for us more closely and follow Jesus more closely when we leave this place tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I don't eat a lot of cereal. That's a weird admission, right, coming out of that. But I don't, I'm not a big cereal guy. So, when 
Steph will buy cereal or there will be cereal in the pantry. It just kind of sits there and wastes away. And I don't really know why. I don't know when that happened. But it's probably related to the fact, like, when I was a kid, a lot of those boxes would have prizes in them. Or because of proof of purchases on the side, I could mail in for prizes. And as a kid, I would eat through some terrible cereals just to get a great prize. Like, if I knew there was a prize, I'd be like, yeah, mom, get that one, even though I know I don't even like it. And she was going to make me eat it because we spent money on it, right? What did you need for the prize, though? You needed that proof of purchase, a little barcode. You cut it out, you mail it in, and you could get some amazing prizes, right? Hot Wheels were everywhere. You could get, like, decoder rings, honeycomb license plates for your bike, right? Like, license plate holders for your bike, uh, Batman uh, piggy bank, all these things I had as a kid because of proofs of purchases. And it wasn't just cereals. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had pizza points, which was just a proof of purchase. But the G.I. Joes had flag points, right? Transformers had robot points. Pepsi had Pepsi points. All these just creative spins on using your proof of purchase. But to redeem the prizes, and again, some of these prizes were really cool, you had to mail in these little pieces of cardboard as proof of purchase, that you bought the product and now you can have the prize. You know, spiritually, in a way, we all want proof of purchase, proof that my balance before God is good because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So I want to know that I have what I need for the prize of eternal life, hopefully before I pass and I'm standing before God because nobody wants to get to heaven and hear, well, we don't have record of that payment. You want proof of purchase. You want the receipts. And we call this in the church, not proof of purchase, but the assurance of salvation. How can I know beyond a doubt that I'm saved? And this is the question that the rich young ruler wanted answered, as many still do today. And so he comes before Jesus, right, and and he runs up, and he he kneels before him, as it says, and he says, good teacher. So you're like, all right, he's off to a good start. He's before Jesus. He's kneeling. He says, good teacher. But in that culture, when you flattered someone, it was an expectation that they would flatter you back. Right, so, so he was expecting Jesus to say to him, well, hello, good, honorable sir. Right? So for him, it might not even be so much what he thought of Jesus, but that's what he expected in return from Jesus. But Jesus skips custom and cuts right to the heart of the matter with his reply. There's nobody good but God. A little plot twist for, for the man that came before him. And why would Jesus do this? Well, because as we see in this passage, this man appears to have considered himself good. Right? After all, he obeyed the commandments. His heart in this moment most likely was, let me make sure I'm good enough. Maybe there's some fine print I'm missing here or there that he could spell out for me, but uh, I just want to make sure I'm good, right? that I'm good to get into heaven, that I've qualified for eternal life. You know, in the NFL, before the Super Bowl, every player involved has to go before the media and answer questions, otherwise they'll get fined. So a few years ago, Marshawn Lynch was a running back for one of those Super Bowl teams. He's kind of eccentric, very introverted, really doesn't like the media, but he showed up so he wouldn't get fined. And he would say repeatedly after questions, I'm just here so I won't get fined. I'm just here so I won't get fined. He made that phrase famous. And essentially the rich young ruler in this instance would say, I'm just here so I won't go to hell, right? I'm just here so I won't go to hell. He wanted assurance of his salvation. And what's notable is Jesus didn't say well, here's a prayer to, prayer to pray, and then you can go about your business. He doesn't give him a checklist of things to do or a checklist of things to believe. It seems like he comes out of left field and says, take money out of the center of your life and put me at the center. Now, why would he give the rich young ruler this test? Well, the rich young ruler's question essentially to Jesus is, have I crossed the boundary? Have I crossed the line? Have I done what I needed to do 
to have eternal life and step into heaven when I die. And Jesus instead asks him a question, am I at the center? You know, last week when we talked about grace and salvation, we talked briefly about this idea of bounded sets and centered sets. A boundary, a bounded set, right, has a boundary you step over. It's a mathematical term, but it's also psychological. It's this boundary you step over, this momentary transaction in a bounded set. But a centered set is where you never stop working toward the center. If Jesus is at the center, you always work towards him and repeatedly in the Gospels. When people would come to Jesus with this question of, okay, who is in and who is out? Jesus repeatedly would return to the focus to, okay, what's at the center? His formula for salvation and walking in eternal life, for the most part, was a centered set. And, you know, for this man, what was at the center was money and wealth, but it could be a multitude of things for a multitude of people. What we could have at the center of our life that displaces God could be good things. People, our own families, our own kids. Our image, our platform, social media, our work, our career, or materialism, as we see with the rich young man. These are all things that can sit at the center of our life where Jesus should be, where God should be. And what's at the center of your life was a crucial question when it came to this rich young ruler and his wealth. Because it, I was reading just this week in Psalm 62, verse 10. Psalm 62, verse 10, said, David says, and if your wealth increases... Don't make it the center of your life. How closely that parallels this rich young ruler. And as Jesus begins his reply, as we see, he lists five commandments. He says, to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. He speaks to the five that pertain to our neighbor and loving our neighbor and not the ones that directly relate to loving God. See, a good person could do all of the things Jesus just listed and still live separate from God now and into eternity. And this man replies, all these I have kept. So he's thinking in his head, if this is the minimum requirement for salvation, I'm good, right? I've done it. There's my assurance. And I love what it says next in Scripture. It says that Jesus looked at him and that Jesus felt genuine love for him. Because what Jesus is about to say and do is about to challenge him on a profound level, on a heart level. And I love that Mark prefaces that moment with the loving gaze that Jesus had for him. It reminds us that love challenges others for their good, right? Love will challenge others for their good. And when it does challenge others, it's for their good. It's not to scratch the itch of our own self-righteousness. It's not to put anyone in their place, which is the fuel for so many of the challenges we throw from our high horses. But love challenges for the good of the one we love. It's like a doctor who has to prescribe a radical surgery or maybe just a radical life change for someone that's unhealthy. This man needed a radical life transformation. How many of us, how many people in our materially blessed culture where wealth fights for the center, as we read in Psalm 62, need the same life transformation? I don't know if you've heard of the pastor, Tim Keller. He, he pastors in New York now, a very prominent church. I swear he comes out with a book like once a quarter that's really, really good. Um, and uh, he, he's become very successful in ministry, but he's been doing it for decades. There was a time where he was pastoring small churches in rural areas. And somebody asked him as he's coming to the end of his race as a pastor, as, as a leader of people, uh, what his biggest regret was. And he said that I've not spoken about generosity enough. 
I probably shied away from the topic, even though the Bible talks about it a great deal. What's a great deal? Jesus speaks on it in 16 of his 38 parables. In Luke alone, he teaches on money 18 separate times. It wasn't just this rich young ruler. It was many people. And in the New Testament, it's not just Jesus who speaks on it. Matter of fact, Paul brings it up as well and makes this profound statement to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8, where he says, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. He gives these five measures, measures, five measures of spiritual maturity, faith, Speech, knowledge, we call authenticity, and love. And then he adds giving. And he's saying, look, we should grow in all six. Because if we aren't growing in generosity in life so often, we're shrinking back. Jesus talks about money again and again. And in the parable of the four souls, he talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. To Jesus, money isn't just neutral. It can be toxic. How? Because it deceives us into thinking that we're self-sufficient. I've got security. Right? I- I'm good. Because I've, I've got the material things I need to where we begin to get this feeling. Maybe we don't recognize it that we're self-sufficient. This accumulation of assets within a biblical context can result in a God complex. In Hosea 13 in the Old Testament, when Hosea is prophesying to the Israelites, he says in verse 6, When they had found pasture, they became satisfied. They were satisfied and their hearts became proud. Right? They felt self-sufficient. Therefore, they forgot about me. But over the course of our lives, we find out what the Israelites did, that our self-sufficiency is insufficient. That's why this man, like so many across history, seemingly had everything, even obeyed, but still lacked. Because Jesus alone is self-sufficient. But the man wanted something to do so that he could find sufficiency. So Jesus complies with the request and gives him a little test. He gives us this command that we see in the passage. He says, okay, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. and You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad for he had many possessions. So Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, it becomes a teaching moment, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them. But Jesus said again, when Jesus says something twice, you better listen. Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel one well, of the biggest mammals in that region at that time, to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And in all this, Jesus exposes the true issue in this moment, a reluctance to give all of himself to God and place God at the center of his life. He wanted to know, what, what, what is this? What's the, what's the minimum requirement for me to gain entrance into heaven? But God doesn't give tickets to heaven. He gives himself. We aren't called to purchase tickets to heaven. We're called to give all of ourselves in relationship with God. We want something transactional. We want a proof of purchase. God wants relationship. He's relational. Again, the rich young ruler's question is, have I crossed the line? Have I crossed the boundary? But Jesus' chief concern is, am I at the center? You want assurance of salvation? What's your relationship with Jesus look like? Where's he at in your life? For so many, salvation and saving faith has become transactional about the minimum cost, what we need to believe or act so that God can let you into heaven when you die. This this minimal requirement for entry, this minimal ticket cost. But let me tell you, try this with your spouse. Try this with your, your loved one. 
What's the minimum amount of dating we can do to keep the flame alive, right? What's the lowest level of commitment that we can walk in here, right? What's the minimum exclusivity in terms of how I can interact with other people of the opposite sex? Where's the line I can cross where I'm good and the lines where I can toe the line, but I can't cross them and I'm still good? These are the questions I walk through couples with during premarital counseling. (laughs) That would be terrible, right? Because we know that minimum devotion, right? trying to, to, to check a box and do no more, that's the end of relationships. Relationships and marriages thrive and survive when we never stop pursuing the person that God's given us to build relationship with. We don't cross a finish line at the altar and that's the finish line. No, that's the start. And in the same way, salvation, which for many of us happens at an altar, or maybe it doesn't, no big deal, but it becomes this one-time moment or exchange. It becomes the finish line in the story of our salvation that we walk away from. It's a posture of repentance and faith, however, salvation is. It's a posture of repentance and faith that you begin with in that moment and continue for the rest of your life. You know, there was a Barna study in 2011, and what's crazy is that it's almost 10 years ago, but that's a rabbit trail. It was 2011. It found that nearly half of the adults in America had at some time prayed some prayer for salvation or to ask Jesus into their heart. And it was a prayer that many of them had moved on from because many, only a small fraction of these people read their Bible, went to church, or lived at all different than anybody else in their realm, their workplace, or in their world. To these people, salvation was a one-time transaction they'd walked away from. And eternal life was something down the road that didn't affect the way they lived today. Didn't affect the posture of their life. Like, if you want assurance of salvation, check your posture. What's at the center? Salvation doesn't come because you prayed a prayer and worded it correct. I've talked to people that are afraid they're not saved because I don't know if I worded it correctly. It's not, a, it's not about that. It's because you put the full weight of your life on the finished work of Jesus Christ and the cross. And here's the thing. It's not that God doesn't want us to have assurance. God wants us to have assurance. Right? He, he wants it to come through loving relationship and pursuit, our pursuit of him, his pursuit of us. See, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted assurance of salvation, and asked these questions, Jesus doesn't mock him. No, he looks on him lovingly, in love. God is a good father. You know, the same way I want Raj to know 110%, without any shred of a doubt, that I love him, and that's never going to change, and that love is unconditional. God wants the same for us. Look, you're never going to walk in radical obedience and take radical steps of faith unless you realize that you're radically assured of God's love for you. And we have proof of purchase. We have proof of his love. It's Jesus Christ and the cross. He paid the price. He gives us our proof of purchase. We don't redeem ourselves. Jesus did it at the cross. We merely like the, the proof of purchase on the cereal box. We, we just make the exchange, redeem it, because he's redeemed us. But here's where it comes back to a hard issue. Because if I was able to save myself through my good works, and I had any part in it, then I could logically put some limits on what God would ask from me, what he might want from me. But if I'm saved by grace through faith, not by any of my works, so that we can't boast, as it says in Ephesians 2, and if it's at the infinite cost of God's only son, there's nothing he can't ask of me. And what does God ask for? The same thing he asked from the rich young ruler, everything. And you know what? I think what's crazy or what's funny is if, if we hear it vaguely stated that God wants everything, we're like, yeah, God wants everything. 
But when we hear it say, God say it or Jesus say it about materialistic things in our materialistic culture, we kind of flinch, right? We're triggered. Mark Twain allegedly said once, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. <laughs> and we get bothered. So we respond in two ways to this passage. One, we try to deflect the demand, right? We shrink the camel. We think, I'm not really rich like those people, right? If I'm a mammal, I'm probably like a house cat. I'm not rich like that. I'm not that big of a deal. I'm no camel. We think of rich people as, as the people that are on the Forbes list annually. But I've shared some of these stats before, but they're worth reexamining in light of this. Like around Christmas, <laughs> those car commercials for like Mercedes and Lexus, and people are, and spouses are just buying each other like a new Mercedes for Christmas. You're like, man, must be nice, right? I just walk out my driveway, there's a brand new Lexus with a big old red bow on it. I don't know where they get the red bows, but like that, that must be nice to live that kind of lifestyle, right? You know, only 8% of the world has a car, one car. How many of us have two? Three. You don't raise your hand, right? But 92% of the world will look at you driving like a, a 92 Honda Accord and think, man, it must be nice. For most of the people in the world, we're the people in the commercial, right? We are that rich person. A couple other stats. One billion people in the world don't have access to clean water. The average American uses 400 to 600 liters of water a day. Every seven seconds, somewhere in the world, a child under five dies of hunger. The average American household throws away 14% of the food it purchases. And Americans spend more annually on trash bags than half the world does on all of its purchases. And I don't share these stats to be some, like, drive-by guilt trip. No, but to recognize that we are richly blessed. And in the broader scheme of things, we're rich. We can't deflect this challenge Jesus makes of the rich man and think it's for other people. It's for us. His words are aimed at us. So when he speaks about how hard it is, we better perk up and listen, pay attention. This exchange should be one that challenges us and our hearts. But so often since we can't deflect the demand, the second response is we kind of resist the challenge. We make the radical reasonable. We try to enlarge the eye of the needle. I mean, let's be serious. We might not admit it, but if we were here for this exchange, how many of us would have been standing there thinking, well, he did the reasonable thing walking away because what Jesus was asking was pretty unreasonable. But you know, the rich young ruler, and so often we focus on the, the cost, what he would lose, what investors would call the actual cost and expenditure. It's easy to recognize. It's easy to account for. Jesus tells his followers, anybody that's going to follow him, he says, hey, count the cost first. He even says, don't begin the journey until you've counted the cost. And he's laying out the cost for the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler counts the actual cost. It's the easy calculation. But I'll tell you, he misses the other side of the coin. Because you know what faith does and faith is called to do is to count the opportunity cost. Which by nature, the opportunity cost is unseen. It's potential. Faith sees the unseen. We're called to count the opportunity cost, which is often the hidden cost. In financial terms, it's the loss of potential gain often due to inaction or the failure to invest. I had a friend in high school. I probably only saw his grandfather a couple times. But every time I saw him, he would tell me this story because he apparently, when McDonald's first started, had the opportunity uh, to like, as it, at its inception, apparently when it first went public, he, he had the opportunity to, to buy into McDonald's. Man, he did the math. He's like, I could put $20 down and been a millionaire. And he just talks. Every time I would see him, he would bring it up. I'd like, all right, buddy, all right, let me go play video games. Let me go shoot the basketball. All right, but he would always bring this up. You know, some of the worst financial decisions people make are simply failures to invest. This rich young ruler walks away downcast. It's as if he already was aware of the opportunity he'd passed on. 
And how long would he walk that way? Right? Especially once Jesus, this man, rose from the dead thinking, man, I missed my opportunity. But you know what's great is the same thing Steph shared at the end of the worship set, that there's no expiration date on salvation. The same way there's an expiration date on our cereal, all these other foods. No, it's never too late. Hopefully that young ruler realized that the door to salvation is never locked on us. God is more like the the father of the prodigal son waiting on the porch for us to just poke our head over the horizon so he can run to us. Lock the door and go inside. No, that door is always open to us. But you know, on the other side of salvation, as we follow Christ, there will be moments that God calls us into. And often we balk because we're focused on the actual cost instead of the opportunity cost. Like, think about it. It's not just money and finances. It's like sharing our faith. We become focused on what will happen to me or what they think of me if I do, rather than what will happen to them if I don't. Or, or think about it. <laughs> we're called to share our, our, our five loaves and two fishes. We're scared about losing lunch, rather, and we miss out on the, the miracle. Moments of generosity, we, we focus on the actual cost rather than the promise. What is the promise? You see it throughout Scripture. Those that sow sparingly reap sparingly. Those that do so generously reap generously. It's more blessed to give than to receive. The actual cost is what we give, but the opportunity cost is the blessing that waits for us when we do. You know, like I said earlier with the the list of the missionaries, it's down there now. (laughs) Sometimes in this life, the return on investment, it, it isn't yours. Sometimes the return on investment, when you operate in a kingdom budget, is for somebody else. right? But think about that list again, the thousands of people impacted, right? The, the college students in China that are getting baptized and becoming missionaries themselves because of the work Toby's doing, right? All these stories we get from Turkey. I should share more of them. It's my fault. Share more of them from the pulpit uh, of, of what's happening through just the seeds we deposit on a Saturday. But this whole idea that, one, we might not see the return on investment, and two, some of that return on investment is going to be after we die, that takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of trust. Risk Taking steps of faith, biting on opportunity cost, takes trust. God knows this. It's exactly why he tests us in this way. Because when it comes to eternal life and when it comes to salvation, many of us want to be able to trust that, hey, my reservation in heaven is booked, it's assured, it's locked in, without reserving the center of our hearts for Jesus. One test Jesus gives, especially for the rich who live with the deceitfulness of wealth that preaches security and self-sufficiency is Practicing generosity. The goal isn't to empty our bank account, but it's to empty our throne so that Jesus can sit on it again. Like, you see Zacchaeus, right? The, the disciples like, who then can be saved? Zacchaeus was rich, and he was, he was rotten, right? This guy had obeyed the command. Zacchaeus was a rotten, rich dude who got saved, and he passes the test, and he continued to own resources, right? He wasn't saved because he gave away a certain amount of his wealth, but he was saved because it, what he gave away was a testament to putting God at the center. But see, we don't like tests. How many of y'all like tests? You're not the kid at the end of class who's like, oh, I thought we were supposed to have a quiz, right? And then everybody else is like, what are you doing? <laughs> but when I see that you guys are like, you're going to be on the road soon, and when your parents post that picture of like you behind the wheel, I'm thankful that you go through driver's ed and you're tested. And I'm thankful that the, dri- the car you drive and the car that all the other people are driving, those were tested. The brakes were tested. We like things that were tested. We just don't like being tested. But you know, your faith will be tested a hundred different ways in life. There will be times you'll praise God on the mountain and you'll praise him because there's a mountain in your way and it requires faith. The tithe lays a foundation of trust in God. 
Wealth is deceitful. Giving is a test. It's a test that sets us up to excel in what Paul called the grace of giving. And I love that it's not the law of giving. It's a grace. Generosity, giving, it's an overflow of God's grace and his blessing in our lives. But it's not some minimal entrance cost. It's not dues paid to maintain membership or have our reservation in heaven. It's an overflow of the grace that's already saved us, the eternal life we're already walking in. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, again, it talks about excelling in the grace of giving, but he goes on, and Paul's exhorting the church in Corinth to walk in generosity. What does he point to? Not to money, not to their bank accounts, not to the need. He points to the gospel. He points to Jesus. Because when you keep him at the center, generosity flows. What he says is, again, he talks about excelling in this grace of giving. He says, I'm not commanding you. Again, it's not a law, it's a grace. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, not rich in possessions, because Jesus, <laughs> right, we're talking about poverty and richness in spirit, life, and salvation. Now, does that mean that there, there won't be rich people or there shouldn't be rich people? No. Paul actually doesn't assume that there won't be materially blessed people. He directly addresses them in his letter to Timothy, where he says to Timothy, he says, look, command those who are rich in this present world. Again, that's us when we look in the mirror. Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that phrase, the, the life that is truly life. Life and life abundant, eternal life, not just a quantity, but a quality of life. A relationship with Jesus strengthened with trust at its core. This is the opportunity cost with generosity, the life that's truly life, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And it says in this passage, in this way we lay up treasures, which points back to the words of Jesus in Mark 10. So easy to read that passage quickly. And, and account for the actual cost that makes this young man walk away and miss the opportunity cost in this passage. Because when you truly count the cost in this passage, the actual cost of what he was losing and the opportunity cost of what was promised to him in this life and in the next, you realize that Jesus' call wasn't just a call to sacrifice. Jesus' call was a call to satisfaction. He's not just calling him away from treasures. He calls them to superior ones. He talks about treasures in heaven. He says, go sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Again, it's not just a call to sacrifice. We see it's a call to satisfaction, to superior satisfaction with superior treasures, the ones that don't rust and fade, the ones that we can actually have with us in heaven, the currency of eternal life, the currency of a kingdom. You think, like, if I spend $10 on a priceless diamond, am I really losing? Not when you weigh the different costs involved. You know, Jesus gives us, in eternal life, so much to live for. In our culture, though, we settle on plenty to live with and little to live for. You know, the actor Jim Carrey once said, you may be seen it shared on the internet, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. It's like a new translation of a verse in Ecclesiastes, basically. Right? It's, it's the rich young ruler coming out of Hollywood. Because the rich young ruler lacked nothing and yet lacked everything because he lacked the trust 
to put Jesus and God at the center of his life. And he left downcast because the assurance of salvation he was looking for in that moment crumbled. If you want assurance of salvation, it's rooted in Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the cross. Not just some future arrangement that he's made for you. Assurance isn't based on a distant arrangement, but a present relationship. If I could have the worship team come up, we're not going to close singing it, but there's that, I think it's a hymn, right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. The, the words within the hymn. Blessed assurance, Jesus is, not, is mine. Not blessed assurance, heaven is mine. Not blessed assurance, life after death is mine. But blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, to be able to, to, to call someone mine, there's a, there's a depth to that relationship, right? Like, like Steph is mine. I am hers, right? Raj is ours, right? Jesus is mine. That's a deep relationship. Again, eternal life isn't just measured in length. It's measured in depth, in depth of relationship. God gives himself. He doesn't just give tickets to heaven based on our proof of purchase. He gives himself. He gave Jesus Christ. And eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, who he sent. So often, we want this transactional faith, but God is relational. So often, we make generosity about the transaction, but really, it's about putting God at the center. And again, that's just one of many areas that we may need when we look at our lives to put God at the center again. You know, if you could leave these up here for a little bit, Emily. Maybe you've been approaching salvation like a, again, a bound set instead of a centered one. You've crossed some boundary and now you're set. You prayed a prayer and now you've sputtered in your pursuit. But see, when Christ is at the center, you're always pressing in in relationship to him. The same way you never stop pursuing your spouse, you never stop in that pursuit. Especially when the call is Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We're not going to arrive in that. We're always going to be pressing in to that. When Christ is at the center and you're always pressing in, there's always a next step. I love that Christina left the next step card on here. Because like they said in the announcements, we believe that when you're following Christ, you're always going to have a next step. You know, we talk about the, these paths of discipleship, really just this idea, if you're following Christ, you've always got a next step. And if you're following Christ, you'll walk on what we call 12 pathways, 12 disciplines, scripture, worship, prayer, fasting, gathering, reaching, relationship, accountability, serving, rest, stewardship, and generosity. If you're following Christ actively, you'll walk on these pathways. Generosity and giving is last there, perhaps ironically or coincidentally, because in our culture, it's one of the last ones we want to do. Maybe, maybe it should be above fasting, right? Not a lot of people love fasting, right? But those are 12 areas where maybe you feel like, man, I could step up in this area. Maybe just focus on one. Right? If you think, oh, man, I need to do all 12, focus on one, two. Maybe it's scripture. You can't even find your Bible, right? Luckily, you got the U version now, but the Bible itself, can't find it. Prayer. Maybe it is fasting. Reaching is just evangelism. Maybe, maybe sharing your faith. Maybe it's accountability. The brokenness in your life you could step out of if you had people to rally with you. Maybe it is generosity. But again, really these things are about, hey, let's put Jesus at the center of our life and let's never stop pursuing him. Right, let's, let's have the posture of our life put its full weight on the work of Jesus and the work of, our cross, of his cross and to follow him. So I'd ask you if you could stand and as we go into worship, just ask yourself, what do I need to step forward in as I press toward God who's at the center?
I love that the, the, the song we opened with talked about, you called my name and I ran out of that grave. You know, let's get to running after him again. <laughs> let's not uh, think, oh, I've crossed the line and I'm just going to stand here till I see him one day. No, we're called to take next steps, pursue him and grow. So Holy Spirit, I pray that tonight you would show us, make it clear what you desire from us. I pray that you would give us the courage and I pray that we would stir up the courage to take those next steps. Jesus, that we would put you at the center and we will pursue you today, tomorrow, and always because we love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Let's sing.